Do you like to wait? My favorite part of that roller coaster was the 45-minute wait in line said no one ever. I was so excited that I arrived at my dentist appointment on time and then needed to read magazines that I never would have read otherwise for 40 minutes, said no one ever. A New York Times article titled, Why Waiting is Torture, says that Americans spend roughly 37 billion hours each year in line. The the dominant cost of waiting is an emotional one, stress, boredom, and that nagging sensation that one's life is slipping away. That's why you have line rage. It really is. Some years ago, executives at a Houston airport received regular feedback that the wait time for the baggage was just too long, which puzzled them because they were well within industry standards, eight minutes. When they did some analysis, they found that it took people one minute to move from the plane to the baggage claim. And then the people would then, in turn, need to wait for seven minutes. It meant that you were spending 88% of your time waiting. So the airport decided on a new approach. Instead of reducing wait times, they moved the arrival gates far away, and they sent the, the baggage as far as they possibly could, which meant it required people six minutes to walk to where they would pick up the baggage claim and only two minutes of waiting. And guess what? The complaints went down virtually to zero. MIT operations researcher Richard Larson, widely considered to be the world's foremost expert on lines, can't believe you didn't know that, says that occupied time walking to the baggage claim feels shorter than unoccupied time waiting for your bag to come to you. So we're beginning this series this morning while you are waiting, and in this series we're going to take a look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, and one of the dominant themes of the book is that you have a job to do while you are waiting for Jesus to return. The Christian life doesn't work if we fill the Christian life with unoccupied time. It was in AD 51 that Paul puts Quill to Papyrus. He's writing from Corinth. And much has happened. Just a few short months ago, Paul was in the city of Thessalonica, and he was preaching the life-giving message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for three Sabbaths, he preached. And quite radically, three weeks, boom, a church was born. Many changed lives. Now, the thing is that when the gospel radically works, you find that Satan radically fights back. And that's just what happened in the story in the book of Acts. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are ejected from Thessalonica. So 1 Thessalonians is a letter to a church that has been radically changed by the gospel, but who still have a lot of the problems that we have today. And I think you will find that as you read this letter that you're reading a letter written to everyday, ordinary Christians. Why? Because they were everyday, ordinary Christians. Everyday, ordinary Christians that God used in a big way to advance his gospel, to do remarkable things. So as we begin, Paul will explain to us how a church that most would have counted out could actually in turn become 
a model church to many in the region. Let's read verses 1 through 10, chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God, our Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. For now, or not only, has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I think we'll see three principles from this passage this morning on why this down-and-out church, the underdog church, could become the model church to the people in the region. The first thing that we see is that the church is found in Christ. So let's think a little more about their story. This church is only a few months old. All of its members have only been following Jesus for a short period of time, And they've come from some pretty rough stuff, some heavy-duty backgrounds. If you knew anything about Thessalonica, we're talking about idolatry, sexual immorality, a bumping city that is crazy. They start out their walk, in addition to that, under intense persecution. If you get a couple of minutes this afternoon as you're making your buffalo dip, Take a couple of seconds and read Acts 17, verses 1 through 9, and you'll get a picture of the persecution. Now, what would you expect to happen under these conditions? You'd expect the church to fold, to crush. We've seen churches fold under much less severe conditions than this. But they didn't. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul preached to the Thessalonians is not a message of man, it's a message of God. And the church that he gathered together is not just a mere gathering of people like the Rotary Club. It's a gathering of called out ones. That's exactly what the word ecclesia means. Called out ones. That's the New Testament word church. A church is a gathering of called out people, a people that God has pursued, a people that God has chosen to place his love upon, a people that God calls to live a separate life from the world. When you look with me at verse 1, you'll notice that Paul writes to this church with two addresses. To the church of Thessalonica, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In doing that, Paul is saying that you and I live in two worlds, so to speak. You are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You could paraphrase the preposition as meaning something like living in, rooted in, drawing its life from. As a believer in Jesus Christ, God is the source of our life, the source of our power. But you're also in Osterville. You have one foot here. You experience the pain of this world, the sickness, the persecution, that indwelling sin that still causes us to be tempted to do the wrong thing, and the enemy of life itself, death. But even when it hurts, we know that first and foremost we are found in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To be in God and in Christ is your true identity. This is why the church struck with it. This is why you can stick with the faith. Your life is found in Christ by grace. I want you to notice that expression, grace and peace, with me in that first verse. This expression sums up the entirety of the gospel. Grace is the root of the gospel. Peace is the fruit of the gospel. Grace is God reaching to us and giving us a free, unmerited gift. Ephesians 2.8 For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which is not an absence of conflict, but a, a radical resolution that has been made in your relationship with God. A reconciled relationship. Where now, not only are you not an enemy of God, but you are brought into the family of God. You're one of his children. So we go deeper in this identity as we go deeper and deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, we talked about this two weeks ago. God's plan is not to steer you past the gospel. It's only to ever steer you deeper into the gospel. I was having a conversation with a Christian and she came up to me and she said, you know, Pastor, I really want to grow. I want to go deeper in the faith. I want more than just simply Jesus loves me. And my response to her was, you can't get deeper than Jesus loves me. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says this, he is praying for these believers and he prays that they may have the strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You don't go deeper than that. That is a bottomless well that you may be filled with the fullness of God. You see, the, the world is tempting you to find your identity in smaller things. Find your identity in your career. Find your identity in how much knowledge you have and sophistication you have and how people view you. Find your identity in, this is really superficial, in your six-pack abs. Small. 
smaller than Jesus, smaller than God's redemptive love. The gospel liberates us by showing us our true identity. We are found in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who you are, most fundamentally. So, where are you finding your identity? Are you finding it in trusting the gospel of grace and peace? Are you firmly established in Christ? Or are you relying on your performance? Paul Zale writes this, Many believe if I can do enough of the right things, I will have established my worth. Identity is the sum of my achievements. Hence, if I can satisfy the boss, meet the needs of my spouse and children, and still do justice to my inner aspirations, then I will have proven my worth. There are infinite ways to prove our worth along these lines. The basic equation is this. I am what I do. It is a religious position in life because it tries to answer in practical terms the question, who am I and what is my niche in this universe? But here's the deal. When we operate in the Christian life under performance, instead of being found in Christ, our dark fear is that if I do not perform, I will be judged unworthy. But here's the deal. Apart from Christ, you are unworthy. But in Christ, you are found worthy because why? He is worthy. And this is why this church could explode. Because their identity was firmly rooted in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at a second principle. We see the church is transformed by the gospel. So you cannot believe the gospel and not become like the gospel. We're going to say this about a hundred million times in the years to come. Look with me at verses 4 and 5 and we'll see the power of this gospel. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Now, there is a lot there. (laughs) So we're going to unpack this a little bit. We're going to start with maybe a more controversial issue. He says that they were chosen. We're here confronted with the doctrine of election. Now, I know that this theological concept has various effects on people when they hear it. Some of us are saying right now, what in the world is he talking about election? I don't even know what that means. It's the idea that God has placed his divine love on people and called them to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And apart from that work of God, they would not have responded to him. Now, other people are asking the question, well, Is that even fair? Does God choose some and not others? Why would he do that? Does he choose some to go to heaven and some to go to hell? Let's start start with that second issue. Does God choose people to go to hell? Comprehensively, as you read through the scriptures, there is not one mention of God ever assigning a person to hell. When you read the scriptures, 
we find that we are responsible for the choices and the decisions that we make. So that's one. Another thing that we need to understand about a doctrine like election is this side of heaven, guess what? You ain't going to get it. You ain't going to understand it as well as you could. And maybe never. (laughs) This is a special, mysterious work of God. Certain things are within the eternal mind and counsel of God, and they are for him and him alone. But the one thing we can say is, here it is, it's mentioned in this text, and even though it might seem like a contradictory truth with the gospel being a claim where you're asked to respond, it's not. You can think of it like this. It might be two complementary truths of the same coin. One side is this, the other side is that. I think of it like this. Imagine a person comes to faith, maybe you when you came to faith. When you heard the gospel, the precious gospel of Jesus Christ, you entered faith through a door that had written over the top, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That gospel penetrated your heart, you chose Jesus, and you crossed the threshold of that door. But after that decision of faith, then you look back and you saw Ephesians 4.1 on the other side, chosen from the foundations of the world. It's amazing when you think about it. The Christian faith is one of those faiths where you should wake up every morning And thank God as you think about the fact that you have a relationship with him, that you are a blood-bought one. I can't tell you a single morning where I don't wake up and feel just overwhelming peace and joy because I know the Lord Jesus Christ. How does God do this? The gospel came in word, in power, and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. This means that a natural man, in and of ourselves, doesn't want to come to Christ. He will only want Christ if God plants a desire in his heart for Christ. And how does he do this? The third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. Once the desire is planted, those who come to Christ, they don't come in kicking and screaming against their will. They run to Jesus. They want Jesus more than anything. Because God has radically changed a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And alongside of that then, if, if a Christian has truly accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ comes this radical life transformation that produces visible fruit. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 3. In fact, if you put verse 3 next to verses 9 and 10, you get a picture of what a transformed life looks like. Look up on the screen with me. There's the virtues and there's the visible fruit. So on one side, you have your work of faith, and then you turn to God from idols your labor of love to serve the living and the true God, steadfastness and hope to wait for his son from heaven. If you ever watch the Antique Roadshow, you you know that the appraisers take the items that they're given. Say a person comes on and they hand them a vase. Now the appraiser would take that vase, they would look at it, they would see if there's a certain signature on there, a certain shape, certain colors, certain materials used. And 
maybe to that person's delight, as they hand them back the vase, they would say, this is the real thing. It's genuine. And here's why. And they go through all the reasons why. Faith, hope, and love are the greatest evidences that the Spirit of God has radically transformed a heart. These have been called the cardinal virtues of the Christian faith. Paul addresses them all over the place in his epistles. So let's talk about faith for a moment. Notice with faith that it is not saved, that a person is not saved by faith plus works. So it's not like you have faith and then you add some works and that's enough to get you over the threshold. You crossed the threshold exclusively by faith. But when you cross that threshold, it was with a faith that works. You might not have uh, had this happen yet. Maybe you have. But as you study the New Testament, one moment you're reading a Pauline epistle. The next you come over to James and you say, whoa, this seems like two different messages. James would say faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But right here, we see that Paul is aligning precisely with what James says. Faith produces visible results. What was the visible result in their case? They turned to God from idols. They stopped believing in these lifeless, dead objects, and they turned to the living God. And the same thing is with, true with us. I want you to notice with faith, hope, and love that every single one of these virtues flows out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jerry Bridges has said that if a person wants to grow deeper in the faith, they should preach the gospel to themselves every day. One author notes that by preaching the gospel, we're more ready to turn away from the idols that are in our lives. Those idols are those things that we place in priority over the living God. And it doesn't have to necessarily be something that you say, I choose this over God. It can be a priority of your life, the way that it's flowing and, and directed. Calvin says that our hearts are idol-making factories. We're doing this all the time. So that every time that I'm tempted to sin, I'm also tempted not to believe the gospel. And it's a temptation to find your happiness in something else. But real freedom comes when we turn to God in Christ. Let's look at love, a laboring love. Paul says that real love involves sacrifice. The Greek word kapos is the word for labor. It produces fatigue at times. It brings us to the point of weariness. So we're not talking about a, a sentimental love here where you look at someone and say, I love you, but I'm unwilling to get my hands dirty. No, this is the type of love that God demonstrated in Christ, Romans 5.8. God was willing to get his hands dirty for the sake of love. An enduring hope. Do you want to be the type of Christian that finds joy in the midst of suffering? 
do you want to be the type of Christian that finishes the race well? Do you? Study the gospel. Don't study it like the seminarian who's getting ready for their final exam test, pouring over the notes and the Greek words and memorizing the verses. Study it like you study a sunset that is coming up and is beautiful with all of its colors. Study it like the soldier who studies his fiancée's letter while he is deployed far away. When you are amazed by the gospel of Jesus and you are excited for his return, it will produce a passion in you that will cause you to want to endure, to remain through the course of the Christian life, because you will press onward with confidence. You will not hope in the corner in fear. You will know that your salvation is certain and that Jesus is indeed coming back. Now here's the thing with this passion. It doesn't end with just grow. It compels us forward to go. The transformed church becomes the missional church. And that's the third thing we see here. The church is compelled to go and tell. When you drive by a church... Do you know anything about that church? Just by looking at the building. Now that church could put out in their front a sign. We could do this, in fact. We could put in front of our church a sign that says, This church is alive! But does that actually mean that the church is alive? The greatest sign that a church can produce is the sign of the members inside of the church going outside of the church and telling the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission is a get out of your seats kind of message. It's a put a little pep into your step kind of message. I think of the book of Acts when the disciples are standing there and they're kind of jaw dropped looking up into heaven scratching their heads And an angel comes to them in chapter 1, verse 11, and he says, Why are you standing there looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. And just moments before, Jesus had said to them the Great Commission, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Basically, the angel is saying to them, What are you doing standing around? Go! And tell people about Jesus. Thanks, Siri. It's like I said last week. You are here today listening to someone preach the gospel because a disciple told a disciple who told a disciple who told a disciple who eventually came to you and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now the torch is in your hands. In this passage, we see three important factors that contribute to the spread of the gospel. The first is that there is a helpful model of discipling. Look with me at verse 5b. You know what kind of men we proved to be. Paul models gospel ministry. Verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. 
the church imitated Paul. By extension of imitating Paul, they were also imitating who? Jesus. And then we see thirdly, the church exemplifies. Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So I hope you don't miss the model here. You see someone model Jesus. You imitate that model. You become an example. Model, imitate, exemplify. This is how the gospel spreads. And it's the most effective type of ministry model that there is. If we simply share the gospel without teaching someone else how to share the gospel, we are engaging in the ministry of addition. And I only impact the kingdom as so far as the work that I alone can do. But if I go and tell someone and I say to another, come and follow me, now I'm engaging in the work of multiplication. And here's the deal, math class. Multiplication beats addition 100% of the time. Remember that old conundrum that Miss Barraclaw in your third grade, third, grade, <laughs> third grade class gave you? She said, if you have a choice between receiving $10,000 a day for 30 days and getting one penny doubled each day for 30 days, which would you choose? And you know what kind of grubby little hands you had. You thought about $10,000 a day, and you started doing the math, and you were counting until you could get that jetpack or that secret fortress. And you knew after 30 days that you would have $300,000. I mean, that was huge. Then Miss Barraclaw rained on your parade. She told you that if you would have had the long view, you could have had $10 million. And if the challenge went on for four months, you would have a number that I don't even know how to pronounce. You see, many churches are willing to settle for the $10,000 a day model. And let's just be honest. If 1,000 people came to this church and were added to the numbers because, you know, Paul came in here and he just started hitting home run sermons and everyone was being influenced and coming into the church. We would believe that we are a raging success. But y'all, that's just a drop in the bucket for the sea of humanity. Just imagine if 400 of us became multipliers. If we engaged in the ministry of raising up disciples who became passionate about raising up disciples, now you're talking about a full-on frontal assault to the kingdom of Satan. Let's look at two more implications here. First, they told the gospel. For not only has the word sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. Second, they showed the gospel. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So the gospel is a show and tell kind of message. It's not just enough to say it. It's not just enough to live it. You must show and tell. 
Paul says that the message sounded forth, so the language here suggests a loud thunderclap, a trumpet sounding forth. It's big. It's attention-grabbing. One moment you're heading in this direction. You're just trying to get by or you're just trying to get ahead. The next minute, someone sounds forth the gospel and you realize that you can have abundant life, eternal life, a life that's full of purpose. That's attention-grabbing. J.D. Greer writes about the statement, I only witness with my life. He says, A generous lifestyle is great, but the gospel is in essence an announcement about what Jesus did to save people, not a presentation of how good you are. Sharing the announcement requires words. Trying to share the gospel without using words is like watching a newscast with the sound turned off. I might recognize that the newscaster is agitated, but I don't know why. And if he's telling me about a tornado heading in my direction, I need to know exactly what he is saying. So yes, we must use words. But also a generous, humble, gracious, sacrificial, holy life adds intensity and depth to the words that we speak. You know, you can speak into a microphone, but it doesn't do much good if there are no speakers to amplify the sound. Our voice will only carry us so far. But you put the right kind of speakers behind it, and millions are impacted by the gospel. I think of Billy Graham as a man who practiced show and tell a man who had great speakers amplifying the gospel behind him. Lee Strobel notes that when most people are asked to rank various um, professions for honesty and integrity, evangelists generally finished among mobsters and drug dealers. But according to Gallup poll, Graham has been listed dozens of times among the ten most respected Men in the entire world. Why? Strobel notes four qualities, and I think these qualities we can glean from as well. The first is integrity. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and your teaching closely. So one theologian said to Graham, one thing stood out, that man was genuine. He believed what he said. There was no dissonance between his life and his message. I want to say something here. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70% of children are leaving the church never to return. Could part of that statistic be dissonance between life and message? They want to believe what we're saying but we have to practice show and tell. Two, humility. Graham always saw himself as a servant of God. Once Graham met with a disheartened uh, Winston Churchill. He was reading him passages from the Bible to lift up his spirits, and Churchill said this, I thank you, you have given an old man a renewal of faith for the future. Graham would later say, I didn't do anything. The Bible did everything. There is the humility in those words to give credit where credit is due. 
compassion. Even in the height of his career, when he was regularly speaking to packed stadiums, Grand would often spend his weekends visiting the countrysides in rural North Carolina, going and preaching to churches with families of 10 and 20. It was not about the accolades. It was about the precious jewel that he held, the gospel of Jesus Christ, for endurance. Strobel writes, on the turf of the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, I watched the white-haired evangelist, then 86. He was helped up onto the stage by his walker to the pulpit, and then, in a voice raspy with age, delivered a quintessential gospel message. I was struck that night to see how feebly he moved and how softly he spoke, yet his faith and witness were as solid as granite. By spending a lifetime watching his life and doctrine closely, Graham never became an impediment to the power of the gospel which flowed through him and into the hearts and the souls of his listeners. Hmm. Now just imagine if 400 of us did that. That's cool when you think about it. Now, tonight, as we go and watch the Patriots stomp the Falcons, amen? <laughs> How are you going to respond when they win the big game? I think it'll be something like this. We did it! We won! And then you're going to practice that little jig. You know the jig that you've been practicing all week. So something like this, standing in front of the TV. But I have a question. In what way did you contribute to that win? <laughs> sure, you, you bought a hat or a t-shirt. But you actually didn't do anything to contribute to the win. And yet... You identify, you feel intense ownership because they're your team. If we can feel that strongly about the Patriots, how much more intense should our feelings be for the mission of the local church? In this mission, you are not called to sit on a couch and eat buffalo dip and cheer at the right moments. You are called to be a starter playing on the field. And this is just what that church in Thessalonica did. They had a major impact because they thought of the church as we, not as they. Even though we are made of individuals, our impact will rise and fall in what we do together. So, go Patriots. Let's win the Super Bowl. But let's also win people for Jesus this week. If we do our job, we will be occupied while we are waiting. Let's pray.